I'm John Johnson. That's not very important. Um, but Gunnar uh, asked me to step in and um, teach the next series of the ge- of a genealogy. It means a long list of names in Genesis, mainly because he doesn't want to be boring. And um, we'll try to spice it up a little bit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And I am mindful of the great privilege it is to stand in the pulpit of God and to speak your word. And Lord, none of us are qualified to speak for you. And yet, by your mercy and by your grace, you have a message to communicate to each of us. And Father, I'm convinced that this week, each person here has participated in a curriculum of your choosing, personal to them, the highs and the lows, the hurts, the pains, the joys, so that they can now apply what's given here today. So Father, help us to look through this, to actually trust and obey and to have a connection with you that's beyond anything that we've had in the past. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am mindful of the great privilege it is to speak the Word of God in front of a church. Today it blesses my socks off that your church, our church, supports um, your pastor and Anna as they uh, took a week off to celebrate their 20th wedding anniversary. And I'm glad we have a pastor that sets an example that lets us know it's important to support our families that way. So good job, Gunner. Um, I think your priorities are correct, and I sure appreciate that. Now, um, still, I, as you know, I, I, I'm not a pastor. I, at best, I'm a teacher. At worst, I'm a cop. So um, <clears throat> I think it's time. We've been in the book of Genesis now for a couple weeks, and it's time for a quiz so that we can see uh, how well Gunnar has done at communicating to you what we get. So quiz time, quiz time. Yes, this is a quiz, and yes, you can speak in church. Um, it starts, the book starts, in the beginning, God created. Who is the first subject of the Bible? God. Very good. Okay, good job, Gunner. One for Gunner. Um, who is our source for everything? Okay, good, good. Um, who, from our study, wants to have a deeply personal relationship with you? Okay, good. Now, who, from our study, is a powerful foe? Who wants to ruin your relationship with God? Okay. What event, yeah, make it harder now. What event are we referring to when we say original sin? Good. Eating the forbidden fruit. Yes. Okay, Gunner, you're a big smile on his face. He's feeling good. I wish your professors were here to see what a great job you've done. And then finally, who crushes Satan's head and restores our fellowship with God? Good. Jesus, the seed of the woman, as uh, told early on in the scripture. So you've been following the text quite closely, and I appreciate that. It makes it easier today. Now, last week, Gunnar made it very clear that we're tracking through two lines, two clear lines in the book of Genesis. And, and hence, we, we come across full chapters of genealogies, you know, X begat Y, and then he died, B begat C, and then he died, and so on. And two mistakes that we're likely to make with genealogies is one, to ignore them altogether. Or two, to try to find some deep spiritual meaning in every name throughout the genealogy. It's just not there, folks. Um, in the past, I've called these lists the line of men and the line of the seed. I think Gunnar nailed it last week when he said that we're looking at the line of the flesh and the line of faith. That's perfect. I, I'll, I'll, you decide what works best for you, but you get, the, you get the gist. And just know that the rest of the book of Genesis and really the rest of the Old Testament is following a line towards the revelation of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, 
that you get to in the, uh, Luke and, and, and the, uh, the Christmas story and such. It's a history of Jesus, God's champion, um, the seed of the woman who will uh, take away our sins and lead us back into intimacy with God. That's the story theme throughout the Bible. And to get there, there's some really weird stories. There's some really strange histories. Uh, but we go ahead and we deal with them as they come. And still, you can imagine, even though we're going roughly forward, things get worse before they get better. And hence, we enter into our lesson today. Last week, Gunnar exposed us to the uh, genealogy of Cain, uh, the guy who killed his brother. You remember him? And we saw this progression of sin in the world uh, as we looked at the uh, line of the flesh. And, and Gunnar pointed, it's kind of sad, it kind of stops, like boom, seven generations out. We saw people taking multiple wives. We saw people committing multiple murders. And worse still, we saw people bragging about their sin. Look what I did, how I avenged myself. Now, God next focuses on the line of faith, the line through whom the seed of the woman would come. Uh, back in, in 425, there's some strange uh, sentences we want to cover there. Uh, 425, it says that Adam, at 130 years old, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And I don't know that Seth is only the third child of Adam and Eve. I think a simple read of the text seems to say that he's the third child, but if there were a bunch more kids between, um, between uh, Abel and Seth, I'm okay with that. I'm not worried about that. The point is that Seth is the one through whom the seed would come. In 426, he says to Seth, at 105 years old, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Odd sentence. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this phrase, men began to call on the name of the Lord, has been warmly debated for centuries. And because no one seems to have anything profound to say about it, I tend to look at that as just the title of our next section. The next genealogy. The genealogy when men began to call on the name of the Lord. And that's Genesis 5, where we started reading today, Genesis 5. The line of faith, the line of the men who began to call in the name of the Lord. Um, I'm going to highlight some names in Genesis 5, but I'm going to skip a lot. Um, I hope that doesn't offend you, but you can read it yourself, as many of you already have. Uh, verse 1 of Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now again, God is showcasing that this is the line of faith, the line of the seed. Verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his own image. His name was Seth. Verse 4, Adam had other sons and daughters. Verse 5, and Adam died. Verse 6, Seth became the father of Enosh. Verse 8, and Seth died. 9, Enosh became the father of Kenan. That's not Kenan like Kenan Reynolds, the Navy football quarterback, but you don't care about that, but I do. Uh, verse 11, and Enosh died. Kenan became the father of Mahalel, Kind of a musical name there. Verse 14, and Kenan died. How you doing? Mahalel became the father of Jared, verse 15. Verse 17, and Mahalel died. 18, Jared became the father of Enoch. And Jared died, verse 20. Verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Now, everyone else simply lived X years, but catch this, verse 22. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, 
and he had other sons and daughters. When we're reading through a passage like a genealogy, we really need to take note of the contrast when something's a little bit different. There's a message there. God's trying to show us something. Something bigger is going on. And this is where we stop in our personal Bible reading and saying, you know, God, what's going on here? What are you trying to show me? How does that apply to me? We call that meditating on the scriptures. That's how we do that. Verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years, 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Entirely different thing that happened with Enoch. 25, of course, Methuselah had Lemek. This is not the Lemek, the guy from the, the bad Lemek from last week. It's another Lemek. And verse 27, and Methuselah died. Verse 28, Lemek lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Different wording. Something's different here. Something's being showcased to us. Now, again, different wording that one might expect. And God is narrowing our focus to a very significant character in the history of the seed of the woman. And that character, verse 29, now he called his, the son's name Noah, saying, this, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. And I don't know what Lamech saw in this child Noah that made him think Noah was special, that made him realize something's different here. But it's not unusual to see this. Uh, we, I suggest that Eve saw something special in Seth. Eve said this when Seth was born, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. And then Moses' mother saw this with Moses, uh, Exodus 2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when, when she saw that the child was beautiful... She hit him for three months. Something different was going on. Something stood out. Who here has not thought their child was beautiful? Yeah. (laughs) But more to the point, the statement, this one will give us rest, is not only a contrast from the curse that we saw in chapter 3 of Genesis, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread. But for those of you who are studying Hebrews in our Sunday school class, you know that this actually has greater implications. Uh, Hebrews 4.9 says, So there still remains a Sabbath day's rest for the people of God, speaking about entering into the rest that's provided us through Jesus Christ. There's still something for us in rest. And I'll have to say that this Noah is a significant character in the progress towards the seed of the woman. That's what's going on there. Now, what a contrast we find in Seth's great-grandson Lemek as opposed to Cain's great-grandson Lemek. Uh, he was the one that said, if Cain is avenged seven times, then I am avenged 77 times. This is the other Lemek. He's a good guy. We press on. Verse 31 of chapter 5. <clears throat> so all the days of the good Lemek were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old. And Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Again, we see a contrast here. We mention the name of all three sons, which implies to me that, in fact, he only had three children, three sons. I'm not going to fall on a sword over it, but that's what it seems to be. Now, with the conclusion of the genealogy of Cain, the line of the flesh, and Seth, the line of faith, God has laid a foundation for the next great transition, our focus for today. God shows us how sin progressed to corrupt creation, the creation that God had made. So we enter Genesis 6. Read with me. Three verses here. 
Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days will be 120 years. Now, as to this multiply upon the face of the earth, um, some people have calculated that the pre-flood population was as many as 8 billion people. Statisticians figure that kind of... I don't know that. I wasn't there. But take, it takes into account the long, the long period of childbearing years. I mean, women were like essentially 23 years old for about 400 years, right? I mean, they could have a lot of children. The lack of pollution and the lack of our diseases the further we got from the genetic source. But of course, that's just speculation, but keep it in the back of your mind. There's two understandings about this phrase, the sons of God and the daughters of men. I don't really care which one you take. I'll tell you both. One understanding is based on cross-referencing alone. If we cross-reference all the different views of the sons of God, what is this? Well, in the book of Job, the title Sons of God identifies angels before the throne of God. You know the story in Job. There was a day when the sons of God presented themselves before God, and God said uh, to Satan, have you considered my, my servant Job, sons of God? And if we let cross-referencing be our guide, then we have angels coming to earth and marrying women, making a race of super children. Still, if we rely on cross-referencing and we're consistent, we have to also admit that Christians are called sons of God in John chapter 1, in Romans chapter 8, in Philippians chapter 2, in 1 John chapter 3. I mean, it's all got to fit together. You can't just grab what you want to grab. You've got to make it fit. And this is the problem when we use cross-referencing as our primary guide to understanding the Bible. Now, if we use context as our primary method of understanding the Bible, and the first three rules of biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. Context, what, what are we reading? If that's our primary guide to understanding the Bible, we see that the line of men, or of the flesh, in Cain's genealogy, and the line of faith, or the sons of God, in Seth's genealogy. And that's what I tend to hold to because I've been following the context of the book. But if I'm wrong, it's okay. It's not going to change anything. If you want to explore the cross-reference view more further, which is a very fascinating view, there's a lot of the cross-references, we can meet at Debbie's house today and take a table aside, and we'll talk about all the verses and enjoy it. It won't change anything, though. However you want to slice this, whichever way you like to look at it, the text makes it clear that about this time, people quit caring about being in the line of faith alone. It didn't matter anymore. They married outside their line. And they took spouses for themselves, whomever they chose. It didn't really matter anymore. However you see it. And this practice was always forbidden for God's people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, when uh, Moses is, is talking about the law and what God wants his people to be, he says, Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with the ungodly nations. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you, which is exactly what took place. 
But yes, that's Old Testament. We're New Testament. Okay, listen. Hey, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I know he's not a Christian, but he's a great guy. Or, uh, I know he's not a Christian, but God told me I should marry him. Or worse yet, hey, I took this guy to church last week, now he's a Christian, now I can marry him. So that's fine, but uh, this is true for our 20-somethings, it's true for our divorcees, and it's true for our widowers. No one is immune from loneliness and the desire for companionship. It's something God put inside of you. You want a companion, but he wants you to have peace also. So here's what God says, 2 Corinthians 6 says it this way, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? For all of our issues at home, I can't imagine a life where I couldn't freely dialogue about biblical things with my wife. I mean, that would leave us to talk about the roads and the weather. I want that kind of intimacy. I'm so glad that she loves Jesus. And listen, I'm not saying that your non-Christian love interests have horns and a pitchfork. That's not what's going on here. Uh, I think we all know lots of really, really nice non-Christian people. I work with them. I, I, I serve with them. Um, but God is clear, and, and many of you can testify by experience, that when a believer marries a non-believer, it ultimately waters down your faith walk at best. And it hinders you from experiencing the super substantial, abundant life that God has in store for you. You, you, You're always dragging an anchor with you. And worse still, the enticements of the world are not simply a matter of cultural preference. Uh, Rather, it's actually all part of a satanic tactic to thwart the plan of God. There's an odd story in Numbers uh, chapter 22 through 31, and I want you to read it now. But in short, King Balak calls for a prophet named Balaam, you know, of Balaam and the donkey fame. Okay. And he says, hey, I, I, need you to, I need you to curse Israel because I want to wipe them out, so curse them. And as hard as he tries to do it, Balaam just can't curse them. I mean, the, the words of blessing always come out of his mouth. And Balak gets really mad. So he finally says, look, Balak, <clears throat> I can't curse them. But if you send in the local ladies, Israel will sin with them, and then you can wipe them out. You can't destroy them from without, but you can certainly collapse them from within. And read it for yourself. This is a classic scheme of the devil. It's just the way Satan works. Let me wiggle my way in and let you water down from within inside. And it's applied very effectively, I believe, in our churches today. Now let me amp it up just a bit. The issue is not simply Christian versus non-Christian. I don't actually want my children to simply marry Christians. I, I want them to marry people who are head over heels in love with Jesus. And in our union, we'll have long, long-term consequences, which is exactly what our passage teaches us. Look at uh, 6.4. 6.4. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Now, we, we don't have enough evidence to draw a conclusion on what exactly Nephilim were. They were there before the flood. They were there after the flood. And there's a lot of opinions out there. But whatever they were, they're presented, um, we, if we simply take in context, 
we see that the result of this, these ungodly marriages, we see this rise of mighty men, men of renown. And one wonders what's so bad about mighty men and men of renown. And I don't think the issue here is that these are smart dudes. I think that the issue here that we see is that the mighty men or men of renown is held out in contrast to men who walk with God. Lamech, the bad guy, bragged how mighty he was when he killed and avenged himself. And later in Genesis 11, we're going to see all the men joining together to build this tower because they didn't need God anymore. They can build this tower themselves. The idea is that men can be just fine, independent of God. That's what's going on here. And do we see mighty men today, men of renown, who, who propagate that we don't really need uh, God, we're so smart, we're so independent, we're so superior, we don't need God? Well, sure we do. Um, I think about Charles Darwin, uh, Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. You can read what their reviews are on God. The list goes on. If we, if we could include people of renown from the sports industry or from the political arena or the entertainment arena, philosophy or even theologians... We'd see this trend continuing. But Proverbs 8 tells you what God thinks. Proverbs 8, he says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. Um, 1 John 2.16, The boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then, of course, Proverbs 16, Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before stumbling. We have a principle here. Hit my slide, please. Principle. Sin always brings contention and judgment. Sin always brings contention and judgment. Always it brings contention and judgment. And this is exactly what we see as we continue in our story. Chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. This is very strong language. God couldn't let this continue. It was too painful for him. We're not so concerned here with sinners being sinners. That's not really the issue. The straw that broke the camel's back was God's people becoming so acclimatized to sinful ways of the world. And if, if you want to provoke God to action, this is the way to do it. Some feel that the churches today have become quite worldly, and that's so. Uh, if that's so, we, we can expect a correction to take place. We can expect judgment to take place with the house of God first. So let's look at the correction, chapter 6, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And we can talk about theology of God being sorry and stuff, but I'm not going to. It's just that the die is cast here. People left to themselves have gone too far. The line of faith has been absorbed by the line of the flesh. A total reboot is about to happen. But. But. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's really good news. You see, it turns out that Lemek was correct. Noah was the one who will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground that the Lord has cursed. 
Noah recognized there was something special, or Lamech recognized that, and Noah was something special. And this is an amazing thing. In the midst of the worst environment imaginable, God had a man who walked righteously before God. As my oldest grandson is about to enter kindergarten, I need to know that in the worst environment, it is possible for someone to walk closely with God. You know what they're teaching them these days? You don't want to know. While sin always brings contention and judgment, it is still possible for someone to walk closely with God. So how do we walk closely with God in our culture, in our environment, and and with the pre-programmed baggage acquired from a lifetime of bad choices? How do we do it? A few observations. First, Noah came from good stock. 524, Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God. Took him. Noah had a great-great-granddaddy that was tight with God. Very tight with God. Don't ever underestimate the value of influence that you can have on your children's children just because you you choose to walk with God. Number one thing you can do for this church, for your family, for the country, for your society, is walk closely with God. You don't have to say a word. Just walk closely with God. God can do something with that. And for those of us who maybe have made some unwise choices, maybe in who we decided to marry, we see in this passage that God is a God of grace and a God of promise. There's always a but available if you mean business with God. Overhead for me. Um, Romans 5.20 says it this way. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's from God. That's not something we do. Our walk with God is not about our yesterdays, but about what we do today and what we choose tomorrow. Your past does not have to define you. So what do we do with this? Let me ask you, what can you do to begin to walk with God. Finding favor in the eyes of God is not about being good, and it's not about vowing to do better. I will read my Bible every day. I will. That's actually the contrary of what was going on here. These vows are typically a reflection of our own self-will and our own strength. And that's exactly the opposite of what God wants. God wants you and I to walk closely with him to it's not a matter of doing better as one guy said it's a matter of drinking deeper drink deeper of the lord jesus christ micah 680 tells us he says hey I, he's shown you a man what is good and what does the lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god spend time with your god intimacy with your god i'm a broken record you'll always hear about intimacy with your god if i'm up here and that said is there an area in your life, where you know you're compromised? Something you're pursuing that is opposite to God's best for you? If so, take a deep breath. Tell God about it. Be honest. Tell Him the struggle you're having. Admit that you don't want to give it up. He can handle that. Talk to Him about it. 
Rely on His strength to overcome your inconsistency. As we close, there are always people up front to pray with you. If there's some area of your life that you're saying, God, speak with me. I want to put this on the table and change directions. We want to help you. We want to make it an easier step. So as the uh, worship band comes up to close, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we want to be able to focus on our next steps with a good God. It's a miserable, it's a miserable thing to feel like we have to hide from you. And we all know that we've fallen short in so many ways, but Lord God, there's always a big but with you. But God. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we pray that you would help us to draw near to you at every level. And thank you, Lord God, that no matter how bad things get, it's completely possible for a person to walk with their God. Thank you, Lord, for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.